0: Hello and welcome to EduThink, where we have conversations about education in South Africa. Today's conversation is around big schools and small schools, and why you might choose one over the other for your children. Joining us in the studio, we have Selwyn Marks, headmaster of Hamilton House, a new boutique school. We also have Jacqueline Aitchison, executive head of Education Incorporated in four ways, and Gershom Aitchison, headmaster of Education Incorporated. Also joining us is Ishan Singh, Deputy Head of Education Incorporated. Welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Could we perhaps start off, Gersh, by explaining the difference between a
1: big school and a small school? Hi Gavin, thanks very much for hosting our Eduthink podcast again and once again providing a forum for us to share some thoughts. It's very nice to have Jax and Ishan and Selwyn with us. I know it's a first for Ishan and Selwyn on a podcast and it's very exciting to hear some different voices in this space. To answer your question, I think a small school is a a school between 100 and 150 students. And that's based on the Dunbar number, which I was first introduced to by Malcolm Gladwell in one of his books. I can't remember which one right now. But there are some other people in this podcast studio that have a little bit more information on that. Salvin, Jax, Ishan? I think the Dunbar number is really about the
2: effectiveness in terms of our social relations We can't manage to get to know and meet people beyond the 150 numbers. So if we we want to effectively manage and understand and network in a group of people in a personal manner, then the Dunbar number says that 150 people are the maximum number that we can relate to. So I, I wouldn't agree with you that schools need to be 100, 150 as far as pupils are to define the best out of that Dunbar number we need to look at that school community as a maximum of 150. So it's all about the teachers and the pupils. So I would reckon that that would be the the number that would be most effective in terms of the entire school community.
3: And I think that number has been well proven for a long time in schools like the Dawkinsburg Boys Choir who work on this model. They take on average 100 students, 100, 110, whatever it is. It means that with their faculty and teaching community, they're hitting that number of 150. And the reason we know it works is because we just have to look at the success rate of that choir school. And they are literally world leaders in their focus. So we know that the model works.
1: And what I'm hearing you say, Selwyn, is that it's not so much about the number, but about the relationships that we can manage in that space. And I think that's one of the defining things about a small school, Is about the relationships that people have with each other, the faculty and the students, the students with the faculty, with the faculty amongst themselves, as well as the students amongst themselves.
2: Absolutely, because I think that learning is all about your relationship with something. Hmm. And most often, learning doesn't take place without some interaction with human beings. And so, Um, Our learning takes place as we rub shoulders with other human beings that challenge us and cause us to think and cause us to change our minds and cause us to wrestle with ideas and with concepts. It needs that human interaction in order to create learning. And the most effective learning takes place within effective relationships.
3: 100%.
4: you any thoughts on that? Contrary to what teenagers think about popularity, the most effective communities are those in which you are known and you know the other people. So in a small school, you know each other and your teachers know you well, Mm -hmm. and that allows you to have a social impact and be impacted by your community. So apart from the entire community being around 150 people, you are influenced by the people in your classroom Mm -hmm. and at least five other people that um, help you and influence you.
3: And, and let's be honest, the small school concept is not a new one. We've seen this throughout history quite frequently. Salwyn, do you want to talk about that?
2: Yeah, well, if you look at education, go back three, four, five thousand 5,000 years, the practice in the past was that intellectually curious people banded together in very small groups at the foot of a master. So you're Pythagoras and... Um, your Greek masters who actually taught. They had little schools and they were very effective in passing on information. Later on, the religious organizations took over the role and the job um, and they had a particular purpose in their schools. But a radical change took place during the Industrial Revolution um, where there was mass migration into the city centers, into the towns. There were people without any purpose and meaning on the the streets, young people especially. And then, of course, the factories became a phenomenon in terms of the economy. And so the state began to take over the responsibility of education. And in the state taking over, they probably had two main reasons. The one was to put people behind the desks in the factories to make the factories more efficient. So they needed to educate for that particular purpose. The other purpose was to manage the social... Problem that they had of so many young people without anything to do now on the streets. And so they had to look for cost effective ways in which to manage that. And so schools just got bigger and bigger and bigger, and they had to be more cost effective because the state was using people's taxes to make that um, work. And we, we're really stuck in that particular model at the moment where the state is trying to make education as effective as possible in a mass-produced way at the cheapest possible rate. And people are beginning to actually understand that the state cannot do that job properly because the factory floor is no longer needing people for mass production in the same way that it used to. And technology is changing and giving people access to a different way of being educated. And so the small school is coming back into vogue. It's coming back into meaning and people are beginning to search for that solution in education.
4: Salwan, I agree. Historically, in an agricultural community, children learned from their parents the skills that they needed. And in the Victorian era, as we moved into the Industrial Revolution, people needed to learn skills that they didn't have, how to operate machines, and schools became big so that everyone could learn those things. Now, people need to be ready for a world of work and have 21st century thinking skills and speaking skills, all of which cannot be effectively developed in a large school environment. And so the old concept of small schools is popular again. It brings to mind
1: that in those smaller schools historically, there was no such thing as streaming or grades based Mm. on ages and things like that. You were mixed in with different competencies, you were mixed in with people that had been there for a while and were more skilled than you and you learned from your peers as well. It wasn't just the master and I found it interesting that it accommodated different people's learning styles, people's different curiosities in a much broader sense than what current schools are and I think that the grades that we have based on age, the promotion and things like that are not based necessarily on mastery and it's probably a reflection of crowd control more than the actual curiosities that initially started the learning.
3: What's interesting about that is as we move into the small school space, we get the opportunity to remove some of the artificial nature of exactly what you were just saying. When we're talking about the mass production of factory workers or, you know, whether we're talking about the the industrial revolution or moving into the next phase of the next revolution, One of the defining criteria is that we need to have a forum to remove the artificial nature that assessment and curricula have become. Mm. We need to be able to customize curricula according to the skills that the children have. We need to be able to recognize their learning styles, their their skill sets, and how we can foster those and and teach them the strengths in those areas to become relevant in the world of work they are going to face. Mm. Because it does look entirely different to what the average school is generally training for Mm. at the moment.
1: So I think this prompts the question, Selwyn, you started a new school, Hamilton House. You're the founder of the school. Do you want to talk a little bit about what prompted you to get into this space?
2: Yes, so I've been the principal or head of two schools for the last 27 years. They were both relatively small schools. And through the processes of managing those schools and the appreciation that people had for what we were doing um, in both of those schools, we suffered from growth. <laughs> and and I say suffered from growth in this sense that that's a good thing, but it also we lose we lose something in that growth as well. So what did we lose? We lost a sense of intimacy and the ability to actually shape the education uniquely for the children in those classes. But we also became a lot more competitive in another sense. And sport, for example, is very, very important to some people. And you can't actually win any matches and games um, in a small school environment. And for the big school context, there are quite a number of families and people in that particular context where sport is very, very important to them. If you think about Growing your school and actually becoming more effective in terms of reaching those um, the, the the needs of the of the learners in that particular context, then more and more people want to join. So then you suffer the problem of growth. Now that becomes more cost effective in terms of on the finan- financial side, but it, we lose something in terms of the intimacy and the. Um, value of actually reaching every child um, in that class in a un- unique way. The problem with big schools is that in order to survive, your education experience and let's not think that they cannot be effective in terms of educating um, children. They certainly can, but there's a tendency to treat all of those children in that school and put them into the bell curve, and then you 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 target your teaching to the middle of that bell curve. And you let either, people, the, either sectors of that bell curve on each side actually sink or swim in that particular environment. And that's probably the biggest problem in a, in a big school environment. So many children will manage very effectively, but there are a number of people um, that don't. Those people that need extension suffer. Those people that need a bit of support tend to suffer. And um, what prompted me was that in my last school that I was involved with, I had so many parents saying we've actually started this particular idea in terms of meeting our children's needs um, in the in the world of work that is very soon going to meet um, be be needed by these these young youngsters and they asked, Well, how can we actually shape education to meet their needs in the best possible way because large school environments are very very conservative they do not change they are not able to um, respond nimbly to um, the needs in the economy, whereas the smaller you are, the more adaptable you can become and the more you can actually shape the education for those, for those children. And so as parents spoke to me and, and said, you know, we l- really like that idea, but we don't know where to send our children because I was in the prep school um, space. In In the prep school space, we would do stuff, and we would do things, and then they would go on to high school, and the parents would say, "My child's at the best high school that my child can get into, but they're just not they're just not following on with the stuff that they started to learn in the in the smaller environment of of the prep school and so I've been talking about that the idea of starting something unique and something different." for a number of years now. And parents have been coming to me and we've tried to find dif- different solutions. And just recently, a family actually with means actually said, you know, we really like your ideas. What, could we start something? And, and so we've started that. And the whole idea is, again, to keep the numbers at about 100 in terms of children with a boutique focus on a skill set that is actually highly, highly Um, desirable in the world of work at the moment and which is mathematical problem solving with a high component of social um, thinking and and social expertise and being able to communicate and sell your idea and to actually work with technology in a a rather unique way that your larger schools just don't seem to be focused on. They seem to be focused on meeting the greatest number of children and, and the greatest variety of options for those children in the big School environment.
3: Mm. And yet, the irony in that is they, they are trying to present all these options within a very limited sphere of agility. COVID certainly highlighted that. The big schools are not agile, they, the machine is just too big and cumbersome. So, when a crisis like COVID hits, they are not nimble enough to respond quickly enough to the needs of those learners and of those families. Um, we saw repeatedly with fairly poor online offerings that took a long time to iron out, whereas the small school has the benefit of getting on top of a crisis really quickly.
1: Ishan, you've been working at a boutique school, a small school for a while, Education Incorporated. What attracted you to spending your time and effort in this space, and now
4: you're in a leadership space in that school? Just share some thoughts with us on that. I didn't intend to be a teacher, and that sounds strange in a, in a career development way, but my my point is that I chose to be a teacher. Mm. I didn't start off studying it. I didn't make that decision back in school that that's what I wanted to do. And it developed organically through my studies and personal development. The foundation for that is quite simple. I love learning, and I love sharing that love of learning with others. So in a small school, in a boutique school, at Education Incorporated, our main focus is to share a love for learning. It's not to cover curriculum objectives and to tick the boxes that are recommended. Our goal is to share a love of learning. And quite naturally, we can then do activities um, which bigger schools would call differentiated learning programs. Quite naturally, we do that on a daily basis, adapt our curriculum, our plan, to bring out the love of learning that we want to see in our learners. As part of the leadership team, I don't see it so much as a job description, but rather as an opportunity to do more of that and to be part of the big picture that facilitates that. And that's what excites me about the role.
3: It's really interesting for me as a school owner to hear the perspective of a teacher and why they would want to move into a a small school space but it also begs the question then why parents move children into the small school space. Eduink, for example, begins in grade four and runs to grade 12. Hamilton House, you starting in grade eight and moving through to 12, which means that people are starting in other schools and then moving across two schools like ours. And I find that a really interesting point of discussion. Why should parents be moving their children into the small school space? Gersh, what are your thoughts on that?
1: When we started Eduink, we registered from grade one and we found that in our discussions with parents that a lot of parents, especially parents who are in the socio-economic demographic that we're in, when the child was born within six months, they've put their child on a waiting list for the private school that the family has always attended or the mom or dad have attended. And usually in the formative, the foundation phase of school, they suddenly realize that their child is not fitting into the mold of the big school and the expectations of the big school. They might be not getting the support that Selwyn spoke about earlier on. And it's forcing them to change their perspective of what schooling should look like. And quite frankly, children are giving more feedback to their parents now. It's the age and the time that we're living in on what they're expecting the education experience to look like. It's not just children are seen and not heard. Children are heard and we are seeing parents listening to what they're saying. We then found that we didn't have too many students coming in in the foundation phase. So we closed the foundation phase down and we started in grade four. Essentially, it is the time in the child's learning where they are reading to learn. The foundation phase, grade R1, 2 and 3, is where they have learnt to read and the academics really start in earnest in terms of actual studying, comprehension, and introduce the introduction of the sciences and the social sciences into the curriculum. So we find students moving into us in grade four and five when the parents and the student have become disillusioned with the legacy that they have in terms of education and the realization that my child needs the support they have articulated that they want to be in a space where they are seen, and that's the word the children use. And it results in us often having families at one private school, a big private school where the child is thriving and flourishing, and the other child needs that individualized attention and to be seen. They need to have the experience of the small school environment and the relationships that make learning meaningful for them, and that's when they join us.
3: So it really is a testament to the era that we're living in. The average child can choose, if you think about even their music, for example, we're living in the long tail, the economic long tail, mm. where a child can go online and find a song that was released in the 60s. They can download it once and that's a done. Yeah. And we definitely are reaching the point where children are, are a lot more discerning about what they want personally. And families are realizing that the legacy thinking may not be working in their children's favor. And they are expecting a more customized and tailored experience to prepare them better for what they will face in the real world.
1: I think that that swings both ways. I think the children have an expectation of that because their entire life has been about customizing and building their own reality as they want to see fit. They're not being forced into one standard deviation from the norm and the bell curve. And some parents are experiencing that themselves that they are living in a world where they are customizing their reality and their experience based on what they want to do. And where that joins, we find parents saying, I want that for my child. And the child is going, well, that's my reality, but why can't it be like that for education as well? As it should be. As it should be.
2: So I agree with that, but I think there are a number of other nuances to this whole thing. So if you look at the traditional model of schooling, your primary schools or prep schools – tend to be smaller and the model is that about four prep schools feed a high school so what does that mean it means that your high schools your prep school will actually have say 20 in a class if you at the upper end of prep schools um, the the class numbers would be higher in uh, other schools um, models but when you get into high school you're talking about 140 to to, to 200 kids in a grade that come into that high school now suddenly you find that the numbers really work against some children, because it's just unmanageable um, for the individual in in that in in some sense for some of them. A small school environment. So you've asked the question, why would we start at eight, um, grade eight and now suddenly have a, a a small school? I think that the the beauty of being at a prep school, and so it's worked for you guys in terms of the. The children finding themselves or not finding themselves in that foundation phase and then you offering something in the intermediate phase. The whole, if you look at it as prep school as a whole, I think uh, children are finding out about themselves in that um, space and parents are actually also asking, well, what's the future? What, what kind of high school should my child, will suit my child to finish off the education experience? And I think that that's what um, has motivated us in starting um, Hamilton House and at a high school level is there aren't any boutique niche opportunities or very, very few at a high school level, but very, very few. In fact, I only know of you guys and myself that are actually in, in that high school space um, yeah. at all.
1: And I think that there's a
2: great need for it.
1: Mm. I think part of the reason for the high school space having so few schools like ours, is that there's a lot more rigour in the registration of the school and the oversight and the preparation of the students for the IEB exams and things like that.
2: Well, I always used to joke with my parents at times in the prep school environment and said, you know, if I hire a good rugby coach and that rugby coach actually cannot teach any of the subjects, you don't mind as long as we win the rugby. And I think that that... Is a problem. I think that the priority in a, in a school environment should be about the thinking, the problem solving, Absolutely. the education.
1: Hmm.
2: I'm not saying that sport is not important, but sometimes we get it wrong. Because the emotion of being successful on the sports field somehow emotionally seems to translate into success in the classroom, which is not necessarily the case. And so I think that we need to think differently about the way that we offer education the whole idea that schools are sports factories for our national teams, which is is where our national players come from. They come out of the schooling system at the moment. And so schools, big schools are very effective at actually producing um, those sportsmen. But I wonder where the scientists and the people who are actually transforming life for the world are coming from. Um, And I think that that schools need to be able to be thinking about that um, as well. I just think of Elon Musk, mm. yes. for example. Elon Musk was uh, educated at a traditional top high-end um, school in our country. He hated it. It just did not meet his needs. And I'm not saying that every child needs to become an Elon Musk, but it just talks to the point that sometimes we get it wrong. That school is quite famous for its sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it. Uh, didn't really actually meet the needs of a person like Elon Musk who's transforming the way that we think about the world in the future at the moment.
3: Yeah, it's the, I think it's the legacy thinking trap again. I was chatting to one of the, the local private school heads not so long ago, uh, and he was venting his frustrations on this exact point when he, when he deals with the expectations, the sporting expectations in particular, uh, especially when parents are enrolling a child in a specific school with the aspirations of this child becoming a provincial player or a national player. And he had reached the point where he'd said, well, in the last 30, 40 years, we've produced four or five. So how realistic are you being right now? Are you pushing something that is completely unfair on your child? So it's quite frustrating.
2: Well, I think sport is very important. Of and course I think it is. it's really good to actually have that whole rounded education and that rounded exposure and the development of the whole person. But, but there are ways and but means. you don't need a big school mm. in order to meet the sporting needs of the population. Well, yeah. I
1: I'm very glad that you said that because one of the, the things about a small boutique school like Eduink and Hamilton House is that we do cater for the elite sports kids where they are able to focus on the sport because they're at that level. And because of the flexibility that we offer, we are able to accommodate some of their schedules as long as we recognize their achievements in that space, we are going to see more and more of the elite sports kids coming to schools like us where we can accommodate them. And we've seen that in Edgewink over the nine years that we've been open.
3: Yeah, yeah, the irony is isn't it? We've, had, we've been open for nine years and we've also had four in their green blazers yeah. just because the agility that we can offer those children is what they need.
2: I think we have a problem in the way that we think about elite sport. We often think of the Tiger Woods and the Venus sisters, um, and we think about their parents actually putting them on sport programs when they were aged five and six mm. and seven years of, of age. Um, but there's lots of research, and the literature shows that you just need to get a general approach to sport sometimes. And uh, your entry level, if it's in the late teens and early 20s, you are just as likely, if you are that kind of person, To make it into the top echelons of sport and probably haven't burnt out by the time you actually get to 15 and 16 years of age because you've had too much um, sport in the earlier years. So Mm -hmm. I think we've got the wrong approach to thinking about education if we think that our children need to develop their sporting abilities at the age of 10 or else they're going to miss out. It's not true. So we
3: actually need to be going back to the fundamental question of what is in the best interest of our children because we have to ask, is it in their best interest to force them into an environment where you have to play the summer sport and then you have to play the winter sport regardless of whether you have any interest in it or not? Or do we provide an environment where the options are available to explore, to play within that sport? And and let's be reasonable about it. You know, I am of the belief that if a child does pick up a sport or a hobby or a club at the beginning of a term, they should see it through. It shouldn't just be a case of one or two lessons and then saying, no, no, I'm not interested. Because then they are learning so much more than just the sport. They're learning the grit, the resilience, the teamwork, the, the mental fortitude that it takes to experience success.
2: So I think there's great value in making it not necessarily compulsory in every um, way, but I think that there's great value in insisting that a certain combination of activities are expected in the formative years of every child. So I think that there's great value in making sure that a child actually has to do certain subjects. Mm -hmm. And we never question that. We never question the fact that the curriculum says that certain subjects are compulsory and that children need to do it. We see the value of it. Um, We sometimes question that every child should actually be exposed to music or to sport of some sort. And I do believe that it is important that we make sure that our children have the expectation that they should explore those areas. Because if they don't, they don't find out enough about themselves and maybe they will never ever go into music when they perhaps would do very, very well. So I I think that it is imperative, whether you're a small school or a big school, that it's important to put some kind of expectation onto the learning experience that music, sport, culture, arts and science actually is p- forms part of that child's upbringing and, and education. But I don't think that that is necessarily the domain of a large school. I, th- I think that it can be done so easily in a small school environment as well. And that's where people often miss the point of a small school because they think that if they go to a small school, they're not going to be able to do that. So in our case, we've got a a girls' school just down the road from us um, where we collaborate with them in terms of the music. Mm. We have a a professional sportsman who is well-connected in in a variety of sports um, in the city, who's actually taking on the uniqueness of the individuals in our school in order to provide them opportunities. And there's canoeing, there's mountain biking, Mm. there's, there's tennis, there's squash, there's... Five aside soccer leagues, there are uh, many cricket leagues. There are many the the creativity around sport in a small way is actually amazing. Yeah. But we're still locked into this idea that we have to have sort of formal big competition and leagues and and be unbeaten in that particular. Well,
1: thing. add paintball. Add, add motocross. Motocross, fly fishing, climbing,
2: archery. Archery. I mean, archery yeah. Yes.
4: Yeah. yeah. It's interesting how much of a parent's attention goes into sport when choosing a school and the misconception that a small school can't offer that. I think the advantage, as Solwyn pointed out, is that a small school can equally offer opportunities just with collaboration. And a misconception that people often have with sport is that um, it's the only way to develop teamwork. What's the advantage of playing sports is teamwork. And as we saw with our leadership camp last week, that teamwork can be achieved through different activities. And sometimes sports brings out competition more than teamwork. And there are some activities that allow people to work as teams and not leave their team behind, which is the objective. And if we circle back to our um, introduction where we talked about Victorian schools The idea of sport there was to make boys who were cut out for the Victorian life as as a lord of some sort. Whereas here, we're equipping people with the skills of being able to work together and not leave a member of their team behind, regardless of whether it's competitive or not. I'd just like to
1: reflect on the fact that the team that won was the team that was the least competitive And I think that's an important lesson because they were more collaborative as a team working together and the end result was more favorable.
2: That brings me to the thought of teamwork is not necessarily the domain of sport. It should be the domain of the classroom as well. Mm -hmm. Nobody builds a bridge on their own. There's a team of people that put together um, the final product of a bridge. And if you actually can't work in a team around the desk in the classroom, you can't work as a team on the sports field. Uh, they're, they're not in entirely the same. However, there are huge similarities between the two concepts. And I think that teamwork is all about the social ability to actually interact socially and effectively. And you can do that in the classroom. The problem is that if you've got a big school, your opportunities to work in small groups and in syndicates in, around the classroom setup are almost impossible. Mm-hmm. And so... The big schools tend to use sport to actually develop those social interactions and that teamwork. Whereas I'm not quite entirely sure that that teamwork that you develop in the sport is always efficient enough to actually build bridges.
3: There's no doubt in my mind that small schools are the model of the future. And the reason for that is because of the nature of the children we are working with today it's becoming more and more apparent that they are expecting a far more customized experience that has to be built on relationship. In a small environment, we can build those relationships on a daily basis. We can teach them to identify the diversity of skill that's needed to be an effective team that can build a bridge ultimately, as well as be effective as a team on a camp where you are pulling to, uh, you know, different children together to get over an obstacle course.
2: The world that I grew up in was an authoritarian world you respected the authorities above you and i'm not saying that we shouldn't respect our authority figures i think that's still very important but the world has changed our children are no longer being taught in the old-fashioned way of saying well i said so so you must do we are working collaboratively and our classrooms are becoming collaborative learning spaces now you need to be authoritative and rather than authoritarian in that particular space, the problem with big schools they tend to lean towards authoritarianism in order to keep good order in that in that school space, whereas in a small school environment, because you know people and you know and they can't escape in the crowd, you actually find that your relationships there are more transparent, um, relationships with teachers and in between learners are more transparent and people actually learn to live their values in a little bit more transparent manner, in a cooperative manner. You actually can't hide in the crowd and do stuff that is not seen. If you hide in the crowd, you can often do things that are unseen. Whereas in a small school environment, you have to be accountable for everything that you do. And I think that's good for collaborative learning and collaborative social development.
4: When you ask the question, should Parents choose a small school. I, w- I was reflecting on a cluster meeting that I attended once where a fellow teacher asked me, Do we do group work? And that question surprised me because I thought about it and then I realized that we don't do group work as a specific additional activity. Our classrooms are set up such that everything is group work. The, the teacher is there to mediate learning rather than to teach information, and every activity is, is a discussion. Um, so we don't do group work as as a scheduled activity. Everything is a collaborative uh, project, and in the same way, like Salwin was saying, that um, discipline becomes easier because those are things that we can discuss, we can have a conversation about, rather than having to just refer to the rule book. And the and the entire process is organic, in that things develop, and we use those as learning opportunities. I think it's important that we recognize that people are different and they benefit in different environments. It's quite likely that your child would benefit in a small school. I'm thinking about a couple of visitors that we had last
1: week and the feedback that they gave us. And I think why parents should send their children to small schools is that everything at a small school is done intentionally. We create intentional spaces to pique curiosity We intentionally hire the right people that create and foster passion for learning and the subject matter that they're teaching. And we intentionally create a space where relationships are prioritized because I don't believe that any significant learning, like Rita Pearson says, can happen without relationship. Thank you to
0: my guests for joining me in the
1: studio today for
0: this insightful discussion on the difference between big and small schools. I trust that the insights and information shared will help you choose the right school for your child. Until next time, thank you for joining us on EduThink. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.